Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Hit Like a Girl podcast is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. One thing I love about working with them is that they're mission-driven, which means that they're dedicated to featuring authoritative shows, hosts, and guests who take on the tough topics in healthcare with empathy, expertise, and a commitment to excellence. If you're looking for bingeable content related to the healthcare industry, they've got more than 8,000 episodes on demand waiting for you. From professional development, the patient voice, digital health, innovation and entrepreneurship, and of course, health IT, they've got you covered. So this is your official invitation to check them out at healthpodcastnetwork.com. Today, we're talking with Sally Buta, the VP of Strategy and Innovation and co-founder at Patient Keeper. Sally has had a hand in guiding the company from its formative stages in the late 90s to its current position as a leader in healthcare applications for physicians. She helped design Patient Keeper Charge Capture, which allows physicians to see the information they need to take care of patients as quickly as possible. She's got a dynamic personality, and it was super fun to talk with her. So without further ado, let's get started. Welcome, everybody. My name is Joy Rios. I am joined by Sharice Maynard, my co-host today for the Hit Like a Girl podcast. Today on uh, this episode, we are joined by Sally Buta. You are co-founder of Patient Keeper. Can you please take a moment to share with our listeners a little bit about you and your piece of the health IT puzzle or kind of where you live in the healthcare ecosystem? Absolutely. So Patient Keeper is software really designed for providers. So mostly physicians, but other healthcare providers at that level as well to really make it easier for them to take care of their patients. So I'm sure many of our listeners who are familiar with any of the EHRs, EMRs, know that those are not always designed to make it easy to find the information that you want to be able to make quick decisions on how do I care for my patient. And we really started this 22 years ago, if you can believe it. Really, at that point in time, we were putting software on Palm Pilots, dating myself, I know. But the idea was... There's information in a variety of different places, but it's not always there so that I could take quick, easy care of my patients and make those quick decisions. 
So we said, especially at that point in time when technology was so nascent in the industry, what can we do to really make it so that these really well-trained people can find what they need to take better care of their patients? And we've really evolved, obviously, so much over the years where now you're able to, at the beginning, it was really to see your patients, take some quick notes, make information, put information down about doing your professional billing charges as a provider. But today, now you can not only obviously do that, you can place your orders, do your med reconciliation, do your full documentation, see your test results, see the radiology images. I'm sure I'm forgetting a billion other things that you can do on the platform, but really put it all together either on that handheld device or on your Apple or your Android and really see the information that you need to take care of your patient as quickly as possible. One of the things our users really like to do is to, to see how they can take care of their patients without necessarily going into the office or breaking the train of thought of what they're doing. Because you can imagine so much of the provider physician burnout these days is you're pulled in so many different directions. And how do I, I make that quick decision without, you know, the, the analogy, stopping looking at my daughter's soccer game? Right, or I'm in the middle of family dinner and I don't want to be interrupted, or I don't have to leave, go back to the hospital. Well, now I could do that right now on my phone. And what it really comes down to for me is not as a healthcare provider myself, I play one on TV, I like to say that, but how do I help these colleagues, these people who take care of patients, do it easier and give them better, better healthcare? And so that's really what I do at Patient Keeper and what I've been doing in. I don't know, over a dozen roles over the past two decades. So help me understand, is it an actual certified EHR or is it a component? Oh. Yeah, help me we get sit, that part. We've really changed our tune, if you will, over the years in terms of how do we market what Patient Keeper does because it's one of the blessings and the curses. In one sense, we don't have a lot of competition because we're very unique in what we do, which makes it hard to define what we do. So what we do is we, we really almost sit on top of or next to an EHR. And we say, for example, with Meditech, let's pull all that information out of Meditech that's relevant to the physician. There's a lot of data, right? Because Meditech, as great as it is in some cases, has its origins as an HIS, the hospital information system. How do I run my hospital? Not how do I better use it as an EMR to take care of patients. So we sit next to it, pull the relevant data for those providers and put it in a really easy to see and use context. Does that make sense, Joy? That, did I get that right? No, that, that does make sense. And so then I'm guessing, is it maybe by organization? Do they get to decide what's relevant for them? You know, yes. based on, okay, so based on their Absolutely. size and type of organization, they're like, we want this at our fingertips where somebody else might have a different answer. Exactly. And it all depends on the problems that they're trying to solve. So much of what we do when we go in and we talk to them and we want to talk to their users, their provider users, their IT users, what, what are the pharmacists? What are their problems? What are they really having? How do they, they take, you know, take a lot of that, that overhead out of their system to really make it easier to streamline all the processes? So the ultimate user of your product is essentially the provider for, most, for the most part? Yes. Okay. Providers and, and some nurses as well, mostly providers. We're moving into the nursing space as well. But yes, those in, in some sense are key end users, but we obviously have a lot of administrative 
and other users who are in there as well. But the goal is to make it work best for those healthcare providers. I guess the latter part of um, 2020, you guys were able to um, allow physicians to look at their records, medical records, and also their charges mobily, um, I noticed, um, which is a great thing. My question is, does your solution lessen the administrative burdens that doctors face? So are they performing less tasks or are they just more efficient in how the tasks are handled in your, with your solution? Well, it depends on how they implement it because they're definitely, the goal is definitely to help them be more efficient. But if you think about so much of what the providers have to do when they record all of their information, when they do their documentation, if they don't do it complete and have all the appropriate information or they're making decisions based on outdated information, they have to go back and answer more questions later. If they're doing their billing, they might have the billing staff come back and say, oh, you did a referral, but I need to have this diagnosis or this reason, or I placed an order for a test and you didn't give me this information. So that causes them to go back and do rework or find other information. And that is extremely disruptive. If you've, I'm sure, ever done that, you're like, oh, here's a critical thing. I have to answer it. I've done it. I check it off my to-do list and I've moved on to the next 20 things I have to do. The next day, somebody asks you a question about that thing. It is out of your brain. You haven't thought about it. And think about how much effort it takes to bring all of that up in the context shift that you have to do. It's a real time waster. So what we're trying to do is is get all of that information available and have them make the best decisions with all the appropriate information up front. They don't have to go back and revisit it. So I want to know more about you. I (laughs) I want to know... How did you start this? And also, I want to keep asking people, I do keep asking people, like, if somebody wanted their your job, how would they get it? But ultimately, what I want to know is, like, has your timeline in your career been linear? Like, did you know when you were 12 years old what you wanted to do? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. For any of the, you know, any of the listeners out there who have a vision for themselves and they've got a plan, good luck. Because that didn't work for me at all. I've had many visions over the years. And in fact, growing up, I was the, I'm the youngest of four, three older brothers, a father who I just absolutely worshipped and adored. In fact, my mom always used to call me junior, which I take as the highest compliment. And I'm in STEM. Like I've always been interested in math and science and anything that I could do to solve really cool problems. So it was, it was very much of the, the I like I like my organization and my checklists and and I had a plan for what I was going to do. And of course that just, that never happened. You know, I was going to be a physicist and then I got to college. I went to MIT and it was great because I saw all the cool things that you can do with engineering. And I said, I am going to be an engineer and I'm going to go into the lab and do this really neat research. And that of course, obviously I'm not doing that now. And what I would really say is find what you love and follow it. Because as you grow, you don't know, A, you don't know what you don't know. And you don't know what life's going to be like in 10 or 15 or 20 years, right? Even if you knew everything right now, it's not going to be what's there. And you're not even going to be the same person. So when you find something cool and neat and interesting, follow it, right? And that might just be you do a lot of reading or you do some research or you interview friends or you find cool people that are doing it. And then you realize, oh, yeah, maybe that's not for me. 
but some of those are going to be to, going to be the 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 things that you fall in love with and you want to spend all your time doing. Well, so what happened? You were thinking like, I want to be an engineer or I want to be a physicist. Then I want to be an engineer. And, and then what? Then I got completely burnt out as many of my colleagues in, in, uh, in college did. And I went off and was a high school teacher. I taught science for three years and I awesome. loved it. It was extremely rewarding. I had classes at both ends of the spectrum. I had the AP honors physics class, right? That are the kids who are motivated, knew everything that they want to do. And then I had another set of, of students who really were the ones that were struggling. And we were coming up with a really cool, innovative curriculum that um, combined math and science and English and history into a way to try to embrace it and learn it. But unfortunately, I fell victim to politics. And what I thought was going to be this wonderful, interesting experience, and I still think it would be if you had the right teachers, all but myself essentially dropped out. And it was full of me and substitute teachers and other things happened. And I said, okay, that's not working. Let me go back to school and see what could happen. So I went back to school. As I like to say, you know, my fallback plan was, ah, I'll go back and get a PhD because why not? In what? In what? It was going to be an engineering, materials engineering because it's cool and I can do the physics of subatomic particles and predict the behavior of how things, metals work, which I still love and still interesting. But, you know, then I had friends who said, hey, let's try this startup thing, doing software. And we've been doing shareware software. I've been playing with that my whole life. And they said, here's this company called VertMed. They need some help writing software. And I said, sure, we can do that. I can do that at the same time. I'm doing my schooling. Everything's good. And we're having a great time. There were five of us. And then it came time to pay us. And instead of getting paid, we were going to get shares. And we're going to make this a real company. Because this is 1998. And 1998, right, at the not close to the apex of that dot-com bubble, you know, I'm young. I'm like, wow, shares. This is cool. And so I said, let's do it. But I was the one, I was the most conservative of the five of us and said, I'm going to finish my degree first. I'm not dropping out. I'm going to finish this degree. I'm, I'm going to drop out though and just get my master's and not be a PhD. So I'm, I'm a PhD dropout. But so we did it and we said, no, let, let's do this. And that's how we really went through the whole venture capital. We were virtual medical systems. Inc. Horrible name. Sorry, Steve. Horrible name of a company. We got called DirtMed. That was my favorite of the horrible names we got. Nobody could understand what it was, but we went through and we did the whole venture capital, go out and get funding, raise, all of that. And it was really cool and exciting. And I was going to be a multi, multi-millionaire and retire at 35. You didn't, you're not retired. No, no, I did not. I did not. <laughs> I think all of us have had those um, foolish startup dreams, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I loved it though. Shanisa loved it. We had that. We had a great time. We really did. And it was we had those sixty-hour weekends. And we lived them, and we loved them. To be honest, it was great, and we were we were creating something new and making a big difference, and um, we really enjoyed it. And you know, one of the other things I, I talk to my to my friends about or, or when I'm mentoring some of the other the women I work with, I like to say life is not black and white. Life is not yes or no. Life is never going to be 
you know, you think you're going to get that perfect answer. Even if it's a no, it's a perfect answer and you're going to move on. It's never that way. And it's not even really shades of gray. It's like an entire spectrum of different colors because there are axes out there that you didn't know were going to happen. So you got to just be true to yourself and learn more and roll with whatever comes. That is a true nugget of wisdom right there. <laughs> it's hard though. It's really hard to do. Yeah. I feel like you have an experience that not, I mean, many people have, but a lot of people don't have, which is going out and getting funding, like even for a venture that didn't necessarily, you know, succeed in the way that you anticipated that it would. What was that experience like and how that I'm being selfishly, like, how do you go and get into those conversations and say, give me a bunch of money because I have a big idea. Like, what have you, how do you do that? I think that women in particular struggle. It is very hard. I think for women in particular, you're right, because so much of the time, what we want to do is we want to be honest and truthful and collaborative. And it's not that you're being dishonest, but you really have to to if you're going out and you're trying to make that big play, that big presentation, you got to be believing and putting forth that dream as to what it, what could that possibly be. And I mean, I, we did that back in the day when we were going out and getting funding, but I do it now, right? Is here's a new project that I want my, my group or department to do. Do I know it's going to be 100% successful? No, but that's okay because the whole point is when you're, you're funding... As I said, whether it's a new company, whether it's a project, whether it's a department, whatever it is, you have to go on what is the potential? What could it be? And you just have to be confident enough that it's okay if you fail. You've got to keep trying. You've got to keep pushing. And do you feel like there's some sort of, well, like you really have to believe in yourself for one. You do. Um, Yeah. And even if it doesn't work out, like, you know, there's a relationship you have with yourself. I trust myself that I am capable enough that if I face a challenge and a problem, I can figure it out. Or with my team, we can figure it out. That sort of thing. I'm clearly, as a dropout PhD who went to MIT, you're smart. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for calling me a dropout PhD. Makes me so happy. You do, but it's not just in yourself. You have to have, you have, to have faith and belief in your team because none of this is an individual. I've done nothing at Patient Keeper or any of the other organizations, volunteer work I've done by myself. It's all the team and who you surround yourself with. All right. So then what's your advice on surrounding yourself with that? With that, like, what have you learned in that sense? Is it like, are you looking for people not that have the same skill set as you, people that have complementary skill sets or people that are like, have completely different beliefs that you're opposite, that you... What have you learned in that sense? It's not completely different. You always hear that you want, to me, you want the exact opposite. I don't want the exact opposite because I would have trouble working with the exact opposite, if you will. I want somebody that does compliment me, but the key to me is that we can communicate well together. It's got to be somebody that you can really work with and communicate. And what I think is really important, and honestly, a lot of, I've learned this from more women than I have from men, is... Look for the quiet people. Look for the people that are just getting their job done, that aren't standing up and crowing about it, that aren't the ones who are, are you know, who've necessarily riven, risen to the top, but are the ones who are there and just making things work. Because those are the people that you want on your team that will take you to the side and give you the advice and not going to necessarily, they'll challenge you, but not in a public way. So it's not a competition. It's really more of a how do you collaborate and do the best? 
And I've found those quiet people are some of the best resources I've ever worked with. I love that. And that's not really obvious because some people who, some people are really good at talking about their accomplishments and saying, you know, just like being really outward about it. Look what I did. Check me out. And not in a pat yourself on the back, like I'm bragging kind of way, but like it's just in a genuine, here's the facts. This is what I did. And then there's other folks that are just nose to the grindstone and just want to get the work done. And, you know, I think as a leader, it's probably really important to have your eye out because some folks are not necessarily into the bragging rights. They're just like into the results. And that seems like a pretty solid person to have on your team. And selfishly, a lot of people, as you said, Joy, don't look for those people. So I have a much better chance of finding really high caliber, quiet people than the high caliber, loud people or visible people, because other people are going to be competing for those resources. And so I have to do a little bit more to get the, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's harder to get those, but those quiet ones, they're more appreciative. They tend to work. But they, they, I find that they'll, they're more, I work better with them at times. Because it's really not about, it's not about the visibility. It's just about whatever project or whatever, whatever we want to work together on. Well, and I bet if you see something in them that they haven't necessarily been pointing out, then they must feel really appreciative to just like, thank you for seeing me. Yes. And I, I certainly know when people say that about me, it makes me feel really good. And I want to work much harder for that person who's appreciating me for, for who I am. Absolutely. I love that. That We've never heard that piece of advice before. And I'm just like, oh, really? Yeah, no, that's good. Good. Let me ask you a question about this pandemic situation we found ourselves in. We were kind of inundated with sudden changes. I'm wondering how the pandemic affected your team and the clients that you work with, did you have to do a lot of um, pivoting to help them? And, and were you able to mobilize or remotely locate your own staff to better help your clients? I would say there's so many things in there, Sharice. So we were in a whirlwind. We had a brand new CEO who I think was in his first week on the job when we had to close our office. So was very impressed how smoothly he kept the whole, even Kiel. I I don't know that I would have been able to do it quite that well, but we did. We were able as an organization to transition to working remote uh, very quickly, very easy. Our our IT staff did a wonderful wonderful job. I, I would say that one of the things that we did, which worked really effectively to keep everybody calm was to say, you know what? We're going to take the next three days and ask everybody to work from home as a test. This was at the beginning of March. And then we'll come back and then we'll see. But let's take it as a test. So nobody freaked out. They're like, oh, okay. And at the end of the three days, we had to say, and by the way, you're staying home for the foreseeable future. But because we did that, for whatever reason, it just worked. And everybody was pretty smooth. Now we had to do a lot of just as everybody else did. How do you transition into online collaboration? All of those different works, the tools, what do you do? You know, you're not whiteboarding anymore. How are you going to do the equivalent of whiteboarding? Since we're a tech company, we have a lot of brainstorming, a lot of ideas. And that worked really efficiently. So, so I'm happy about that. In fact, we're two weeks, we're about to go back. So we're, we're excited for that as well. But it was a little bit hard for some of us who are used to being on site, working with our, our users, right? Getting feedback. I loved one of my favorite things is just standing next to somebody who uses our software and watching it, watching what they do. 
Um, I can ask them questions, but watching how they interact with it in many ways is so much more valuable. Well, how do you do that when you can't stand next to them? It's really hard. And I honestly don't have a good answer because as soon as you start videotaping them or ask them to do an emulator or some other tool, they're much more conscious about it. I have an idea. Yes. Ask them to stand on their front porch and somehow get interconnected with their ring or their nest cam. But even so, well, Joy, I love that idea. The problem is they now think they're being watched. But it was already there. I know. If, if it worked, I, if I have, I, it just didn't work. Any of the things we tried just didn't work. I mean, we got some feedback, but not that natural. I want the feedback of somebody in their normal way of, of doing. But of course, nothing was normal for them with COVID. Nothing no. was. No. And so that brings me to my question, yeah. which is, what's the normal that you want to contribute to? Like, if we all are in agreement, we don't want to go back to the old normal. We want to create a new normal. And, I, and maybe that's presumptive to say that, to even say that. But if, if we're going to be creating a new normal, what is it that you would like to contribute to what that is? Like, how, what, what do you want to create that isn't going to be normal? So one of the things that, that I was hoping we were going to get, and I'll answer your question in a slightly roundabout way. I was hoping we were going to get out of COVID is, right, we are all in this huge problem together. And how do we solve it together? And I was hoping it was one of those major events that we could react to, right? Like a war, some major catastrophe, whatever it happened to be, we as a country, as a community, Often a lot of change comes, like the whole punctuated equilibrium concept in if you want to go to evolution, where the idea is a massive change comes in reaction to big changes, right? And I was hoping, you know, that could be a positive of this. And I think we've definitely seen some where now working remote is really understood as a, a just a way that we can function appropriately. When a lot of places it was poo-pooed before, not everywhere, but a lot of places. And so I was hoping that was what was going to come out of this. And while we did on the science side, on the vaccine side, wow, did we as a country band together, scientists did so much work to accelerate so much of that research into finding, finding our vaccines. I don't think we did in the rest of our country, in the rest of healthcare, as much as I would have liked. So if I look back, though, what have we learned from it? I think what we're all doing is questioning, questioning a lot of the way we work, the way we interact with our colleagues, right? Nobody wants to go back into the office full time for the sake of going back full time, right? If you're going back, you're going back for a reason. So what is that reason? Is it that you want to work alongside your colleagues because you have better interactions with them? Is it because, frankly, you don't have a very good office space at home? whether it's an internet or a barking dog or whatever, you know, you've got kids, whatever, you just, you can't function as well at home. I think this gives us, I'm hoping all of us an opportunity to step back and really ask ourselves that why. As we're going back, as, an, as, as my company is going back into the office, and I know you're about to ask something, Joy, so I apologize. But as our company is going back into the office and people are trying to decide, do I want to go back at all, one day, two days, five days. That's what I keep encouraging all of them to ask themselves. What is your goal? Why are you going back to the office? And how does that help you really take better care of yourself personally and contribute better to the organization? And are you meeting it by whatever decision you're about to make? 
Well, that was a question I was going to have for you. Are you guys going to a hybrid model where people will have the choice of working a certain number of days? And the other, on the other side of that, what comes up for me is the idea that we've already lost a good portion of our workforce from a female standpoint to this pandemic. We, and, you know, some statistics say we put ourselves behind by at least 30 years. So yep. do you think having to go back to work or even the hybrid models, can we close some of that gap of um, what we lost in, in the way that we lost women in the workplace during this pandemic? I think the answer to that is yes, we have to go back to, again, asking ourselves the why. Why do we need to go back to the office? And our organization, we are going back, at least for the rest of 2021, it is a personal choice. It's what you're most comfortable with. We're encouraging people to, and we're sort of phasing this in, to go one or two days if appropriate, but not appropriate for all different roles. But again, only if people are comfortable and that's from a health and you know, personal safety standpoint. It's also for what works best for you as a worker. As I said, I think one of the things that we've learned so much from this pandemic is that working from home is effective. And in fact, many people are more effective working from home. And we have to respect that. And that doesn't mean that I come into my office, I sit at my desk at 8.30, I take a 15 minute break. I do this. I'm like, no, you work however works best for you. If that means you, you stop at four o'clock, pick your kids up from school, have dinner, put them back in, and then you're going to continue your hours later in the night, or maybe you shift earlier. As long as you're meeting whatever those goals are, great. But that means you have to communicate about those goals, right? Because if you have that assumption that I can sit here and I can judge you because you're not sitting at your desk between the hours of nine and five, then that's not really communicating and that's not being being really supportive as to what are the goals of each of your workers and of yourself. I love that. And I like that it's results. I mean, personally, I like being results oriented. It's like, listen, we have a job to get done. I'm interested in the results. Whatever time you decide to do the work, as long I don't really care as long as the work gets done. Yeah, I'm sure that, that all of us sitting here on this podcast have very different hours that work best for us to get our work done. Right. For me, I need quiet time to think at times. And so that means I have to carve out time in my day where I can't have any meetings. Other people, it's going back and forth and interacting that ideas come on. And and we have to be respectful of that because everybody works differently. And we work differently at different times in our life. Obviously, when I had young kids, I was a very different sort of working mental state than I am now with my son off in college. It's very different. Okay. So that brings up a next point, which is. What do you do when you're not working? <laughs> what do you do for your downtime? What do you do to create and to create peace in your life and or balance? So for the longest time pre-COVID, I was an avid hiker. So I was so excited to go on yesterday's hike. I was like, when, when David shared that with me, I was like, this is going to be perfect. So I was really bummed that it didn't. One of the things that I did with one of my girlfriends, in fact, she got me into what's called high pointing which is trying to get to the high point of every state. Oh, I've never heard of that. If you're not a hiker, you probably haven't. It's not a very common thing, but if you're a hiker, you know. And there are different kinds of high points. There's the state high points, trying to get to those. There's in Colorado or in the Rockies, the 14,000 footers. So can you get to the top of each of those? Up in New Hampshire, in the White Mountains, there's the 4,000 footers. There's one in the Sierras, et cetera. So so there are those. And um, so I've gotten to 46 out of 50 states. 
Are you kidding me? I know, and everybody's like, why are you stopping? (laughs) Well, life happened, pandemic happened, and getting to the top of Alaska requires a lot of commitment. And I said... You've got the whole rest of your life to catch the... I mean, yeah, you've got time, but what are the four that are missing? Alaska and what are the other three? So Alaska, Denali, Washington, Rainier, Hawaii which I actually may have been to when I went to a trip on Hawaii when I was like 27, but I don't know, so I can't count it because I can't remember exactly where we went. And that was before I had GPS tracking my every moment, so I don't know. And then my last one is Massachusetts, where I live. My goal was going to do it. It was going to be my 50th state on my 50th birthday, but it's too late now because I'll turn 50 next year. And uh, as I said, Alaska takes a lot of prep work. So maybe Alaska should be your last one. Maybe, or you really want Massachusetts to be your last one. Well, I was going to have a big party because you can also drive there. And I thought, oh, anybody who wants to hike it with me, because it's not that big of a hike, could hike up there. Or everybody else could just drive there and we could have a big party at the top. So it'd be inclusive of anyone who wants to join. I mean, I love your ideas, but I think that we all have a relationship with expectations where sometimes we have to let it go. (laughs) Did I hear a conversation about that earlier in this call? I think we did. (laughs) We were like, this is what I want to happen. And they're like, dang it. I know. It doesn't always work out that way. But that is a great goal, by the way. That's amazing. And I do. I do hope that once things calm down, I'll start putting time back into it, get back into the training and, uh, and make it. So tell me, Sally, what is one mindfulness thing you do every day that you could share with other women to help you stay focused? Every day. I don't know that I have a specific practice every day. When I get stressed out, I absolutely use Alexa. She's important in my life and she just beeps because she heard me say the name. (laughs) To do, if I'm really overwhelmed, I get really frustrated. It's generally when I'm frustrated in a meeting with people who aren't really, in my opinion, listening and thinking about the goal of what we're trying to do. So if I get really frustrated in any of these situations, just five, 10 minute meditation, just sitting and breathing calmly always brings me back down. But I don't do it every day. I do it really when necessary. Okay. If I would say the one thing that I do, I don't know if it's mindfulness or not. I do love to do the New York Times crossword. That is it. I do that. And we, I have lots of friends that, uh, that will, will text each other, phone a friend, what is 47 down? I can't get it. Can you give me a clue? So we're very nerdy that way, I know. No, I love that one. I love the other one also, the spelling bee one. Yes. Um, it's not your average. <laughs> That's my favorite. <laughs> I would do, I, I, I would, I'm not going to give it up, but I did find today's pangram, so that made me happy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> nice job. So you're not the only nerd in this call. <laughs> love it. I think that any of us that can sort of geek out around like the cost equations of healthcare can... <laughs> can be geeks like that's fine we can embrace it (laughs) well sally thank you very much for joining us today it was really nice just kind of i love to hear your energy like i it Mm -hmm. feel like it is like coming through the call and i'm like it's giving me life and it's been a long day so i appreciate that if people want to find you if they want to follow you if they want to work with you if they want to find patient keeper like how would they do so what's the best way to get in touch so i'm on linkedin Sally Buta on LinkedIn. You'll find me. That's probably the easiest way by far. Patient Keeper, www.patientkeeper.com. We're there. 
And um, we've got our great marketing team who is there to help if you have any salesy sort of questions. Not that this is a sales, but anything else. Yeah, feel free to reach out. I'm happy to answer whether they're questions about healthcare IT software, hiking, or what's it like to be a woman in tech. I'd love it. I'd share it with anybody. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thanks for your time. And thanks for, you know, sharing your story and giving us the opportunity to get to know you better. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks, Joy. Thanks, Sharice. Thanks, Ashley, Ashley, too. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. This episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird Inc. CMS's Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, or MIPS, is super complex. And if clinicians ignore the program or perform poorly in it, it can result in a hit to their revenue and reputation. Chirpy Bird is proud to say that more than 95% of its clients are exceptional performers in MIPS, meaning they've maximized the score that directly translates into their Medicare reimbursement rate. Chirpy Bird offers their audit-proof services to practices of all sizes through an affordable monthly subscription that includes unlimited access to a regulatory expert who guides them in knowing what data to track, how to create workflows that make capturing that data easier, and ensures that they submit it all to CMS on time and performing at its best. Contact Chirpy Bird today or learn more at chirpybirdinc.com. That's chirpybirdinc.com.